Well, well, good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. It's good to see you. Good to be together uh, this weekend. Uh, a pleasure and a privilege today to be able to share with you just a little bit the absence of uh, our senior pastor, Paul Jimenez. Uh, for those of you who may be new today, uh, is on vacation. My name is David Klein. I serve as executive pastor here at Taylor's, and I'm excited to share with you today a story uh, that has been near uh, and dear to me for a long time. It's one that was one of my grandfather's favorite stories uh, in the Bible. It ties in with this theme and the holiday of Thanksgiving uh, that we've just celebrated together. And so it's good uh, to see you. Welcome, welcome to those of you uh, over in the contemporary service in our worship center. And uh, before we get started, I want to invite you to pray with me, if you would. Our Heavenly Father, today as we come and having just celebrated uh, a national holiday of thanksgiving, Lord, you remind us throughout the scriptures that we are to enter into your courts with praise, to enter into your presence with thanksgiving, and that that shapes and sets the pace for our worship. And so, Lord, we want to pray today with prayers of thanksgiving for who you are, Lord, for all that you have done. And we want to thank you, Lord, for your presence here. We thank you for Jesus. What a beautiful name, as we just sang. We thank you that as we come to this season of Christmas and Advent, that you sent your Son to become our Savior. And, Lord, that in his death, burial, and his resurrection, you then sent your Holy Spirit to live with us, and Lord, we thank you today for his presence, not only in us, but amongst us today. And I pray that as we open up your word that's designed and, and given to teach and to reprove and to correct and train us up to live out the calling that you've called us to live, that Lord, your Holy Spirit would take your word, you'd apply it to our life and our circumstances, and we trust that as you've said, it will not return void. So accomplish what you will today. We pray it in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, I want to share with you guys a story as I start, one that's been really etched in my mind for about, I'd say, 10 years since I read a book called Finishing Strong. I've shared this story in different ministry settings. I've shared it uh, in some of them here at Taylor's. It's a story worth repeating if you've heard it before. But a book called Finishing Strong, written by Steve Farrar, is where he tells this story. And every time that I remember it, every time that I am reminded of it, it, it stands out to me as, as two things. It's an epic challenge, something that is difficult, but it's also a worthy goal. It's something that I think is something all of us in this room, in both rooms, should strive uh, to make a worthy goal for in life. And it tells a story of a guy named John Bassanio. He was a pastor at First Baptist Houston for many, many years. And when he was 21 years old, he was getting ready to go to seminary and he was engaged uh, to his soon-to-be wife and had gone over to her parents' house. And her uh, dad, his future father-in-law, had been a pastor for a number of years. And John had felt the calling of his life to go into ministry and wanted to ask him, listen, as I'm just starting out on this journey to ministry, I just wanted to ask if you've got any pieces of advice, things that you might share with me that would be good for me to hear as I'm on the beginning uh, of this 
walk, a beginning of this journey. And, and here's what he said. He said, John, stay true to Jesus. He said, keep your heart close to him every single day. He said, because it's a long way from here to where you're going, and Satan is in no hurry to get you. He said, always remember, John, that it's not how you start that matters most, but it's how you finish. He said, I say that because it's been my experience that out of 10 men who start out well, only one out of the 10 finishes strong. And when he heard that, John Bassanio said he, he thought to himself, I, I can't be right. One out of 10, surely that's not the case. And so he went home and he wrote down on the back page of uh, one of the pages in his Bible, the names of 24 guys, 24 guys that he knew or had been trained for ministry that loved the Lord, that he felt like were going to leave a lasting mark for the gospel. And he tells a story in the book that 32 years later, when he was 53 years old, he said, you know, over the years, I've regretfully had to turn back to that page and cross out another name. And he said, 32 years later, he said, out of the 24 that I wrote down, he said, I got three names left. Three names out of 24. It's a little uh, more than one out of 10, but his father-in-law wasn't too far off the mark. Now, I would imagine that if I were to ask by raising of hands, how many of you here in the room want to be a one out of 10 kind of Christian? A lot of hands would go up. I'm, I'm sure of it. We all want and would say we want to be a one out of 10 kind of person who finishes strong. But here's the, here's the reality. It's, it's a rare thing. It's a rare thing. And it takes a rare kind of individual to be that one. And so as we start this morning, let me just ask you a question. Think about where you are in your spiritual life and think about this. What are you doing today, right now, to ensure that you're going to become that one out of 10? See, though something about that one in 10 person is that they do some things differently than the other nine that sets them apart and it's a sobering story, as I said. It's an epic challenge, but it's also a worthy goal. And so I share that with you, uh, this one out of 10 theme, because I want to share with you another story. I want us to look together today at another story, another one out of 10 story uh, about a man who does something differently than the other nine that sets him apart. It causes him to stand out from amongst the crowd. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to turn with me uh, to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 11 through 19 today. And it's a story uh, that interestingly is only found in Luke's gospel. Uh, and it's a story today that's going to help us ask and answer three particular questions. The first one is, what did this one man do that was different? And second, why did he do it? And third, as we look at that and reflect on his example, how does God want us to respond? What is, what's something that we must do in order to follow in this man's footsteps? And so that's where we're headed this morning. So look with me, Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 11. Dr. Luke says this, while he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, it says, 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. 
when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. And now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, were there not 10 cleansed? But the other nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? turned and said to him, stand up and go, for your faith has made you well. Well, Let's take a look and break this down just a little bit in some sections. Verses 11 through 13, we're going to find these verses describe a desperate request. And it starts, as Luke said, while he was on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus was a man who was on a mission. If you go back to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says that Jesus was determined to go there. It's a word that literally or means uh, that he set his face. He was resolute. There was nothing that was going to sway him or to prevent him from going and accomplishing what God the Father had willed would happen, that he should go to Jerusalem and give up his life as a ransom for many, that his passion would, would happen there in the city of Jerusalem. And so Jesus is on his way there. It's in the final months of his ministry is when this takes place, and something significant happens as he's passing between Samaria and and Galilee. This was a common route uh, that Galilean Jews would take as they were making their trek to Jerusalem, down into Judea. Uh, They would go along this route. And you need to know that Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They despised one another. It was like Carolina Gamecocks and Clemson Tigers, okay? It was like Michigan Wolverines and Ohio State Buckeyes. They, They couldn't stand each other. So much so that if you were a good Jew in that day, you would, you would walk up to 50 miles. Okay, think how long that would take you. Walking 50 miles just to go around their land so that you didn't have to pass through it, even though it was shorter. They hated them so much they didn't even want to put their feet on the soil in the Samaria. And so uh, what we're going to encounter here in verse 12 are 10 guys. Nine of them are Jews. One is a Samaritan, but all of them, share this common misery. And it says in verse 12, as Jesus entered a village, 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him. Now, leprosy is a, is a disease that not only affected you physically, uh, but it also affected your senses. Your skin would just be horrific looking. Your face could be disfigured. Uh, but it also just affected your ability to hear and to smell and to taste. And the way that lepers were treated in ancient societies, they were cast out. They were outside the camp. They couldn't live with the people. They had to go outside of the camp, and they were alienated from all religious and social life. And Leviticus tells us that if you were a leper and you were outside the camp, you had to tear your clothes, and anytime somebody came anywhere within shouting distance, they had to yell, unclean, unclean, and they wore a bell. That if anybody got close enough to them, they would ring this bell to say, listen, here's your warning, stay away, keep your distance, you can't come near me. And so if you have that picture in your mind, can you imagine the shame? Can, can you imagine the embarrassment? that someone like these 10 men must have experienced on a day-to-day basis. Your only hope was that somebody might pass by 
and, and extend to you an ounce of compassion to maybe leave some food for you, maybe leave some water for you, but that was it, to call out for mercy and grace. Apart from that, you had no hope. And so this is a situation that these guys are in. And so when they see Jesus coming by, it says they raise their voices and they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And this is their request. Jesus, would you, would you extend some compassion on us? Look at us in our horrible state. We, ple- we plead for mercy. We beg you for mercy. They call him Master. It's a, a, a word that, Uh, expresses their recognition of his authority, and they saw him as their only hope. And so this word mercy is a word that that means um, compassion that moves one to address a need in someone's life. Uh, It's literally the word in the original language has to do with the bowels of a person, the depths of somebody. They would feel sorrow in the gut, in in the depths of who they are, so much so that it would motivate them to move into action and to do something to address the need that was in front of them. That's what they're asking Jesus to do. And as we'll read in verse 14, that's exactly what happens. Look at this, verse 14, this divine renewal. It says, when he saw them, he being Jesus, Jesus said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, in Luke 5, Jesus, he had touched a leper and he healed him. But here, Jesus doesn't touch any of them. He simply speaks to them and he gives them kind of an odd command because usually a command to go and show yourself to the priest would be something that you would do following a cure. You've been cured, now you're going to the priest. But Jesus' words say, go and show yourselves to the priest in your state, implying that as you go, as you step out in faith, as you step out in obedience, your healing will come. And so, you know, the, the reasons of, you know, some people go, well, why did he send them to the priest? Why didn't he just touch them like he did in Luke 5? I, I don't know. A couple of things. One could be that it was simply Jesus wanted their cleansing, their healing, and to present themselves before the priests as a sign to authenticate messianic prophecies that said the Messiah is going to come and do all these miracles. Maybe he was wanting to authenticate that before uh, the official leaders of the day. Or maybe it was simply for those leaders, those priests, to officially proclaim that, that these lepers were indeed cleansed and now they could enter back into society that they had been banished from, that they had been uh, set apart from. And so, you know, it's just, a, it's just a note. I think it's interesting here. You know, when God cleanses a sinner, if you've made a, a decision to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and God has cleansed you of your sin, We still wrestle, but positionally before God, we're seen as righteous. We're seen as clean and made whole again. And it's a reminder that we're not to view people, a saved person, not as who they once were, but rather in light of who they now are. And I remember when I went to seminary out in Dallas, uh, there was a gentleman that I met. His name was Wilson. And Wilson had battled most of his life with homosexuality. And Wilson became, for me, honestly, one of the first men engaged in that lifestyle who I knew had come to Christ, who I really befriended and got to know and heard his story and began to walk with him. And it was a journey of me being reminded of what I just said to you, to not look at him in light of who he once was, but now not as a man struggling in a, in a, a, a sin for lifestyle 
but as one who God had said, you are now clean, Wilson, I have saved you. As Paul says of the Corinthians, such were some of you. He said, but and the verse was up on our screen a little bit ago, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He said, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, okay, in the name of the Lord Jesus. You were placed in Christ. There's no varsity, there's no JV, there's no C team. When God saves a person, he puts them in the body of Christ and there's one body. And it's just an encouragement to realize some of these people may not have wanted, I'm speculating here, okay, but they may not have wanted, despite the fact that they were made clean, to come back into the camp. Wait a minute, this guy had leprosy? I don't want my kids to be around him. Maybe he's not fully clean. Or, or I know kind of what he, he's done, and maybe that was a curse because of the way he's living his life, and I, I don't really want to be around that. And what God is saying is, listen, when God saves somebody, they are changed. And how we view them, how we receive them is a challenge but one that we've got to heed to be like Christ. And so um, what happens is this is what Jesus is saying. As they go, show yourself to the priest who will, will, will proclaim that you can now enter back into the life you once knew. And it says in the second part of 14, and as they were going, they were cleansed. As they were going, they were cleansed. A word that means cured, purified, free from guilt and defilement and made whole. It's a radical transformation that happened with these men. And I can, you know, if you imagine what their life must have been like, and all of a sudden they're walking along, and you're going, boom, just out of nowhere. Look, all, all my fingers, I've got all 10 of them again. Or, hey, man, look at your face. Look at your skin. It's, you don't even look the same. You're like normal. And the guy's having a conversation like, do you realize what this means? That, that we can go back home, that we can hug our wives and our children, that we can eat normal food. We don't have to hang out at the garbage dump trying to find scraps to survive. We can go back and enjoy the feast. We can engage and worship in the temple. Guys, this is unbelievable. I can't imagine what it must have been like, but that's what's happening in that moment. And it's a beautiful picture of salvation. What happens with these guys here is a beautiful picture of, of what happens when a person comes to Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, here's what, here's what you would have done. You'd have, you'd have taken two doves, and you'd have given them to the priest. And he'd have taken one of those birds, and he'd kill it. And he'd dump its blood into a bowl. And then he'd take the other bird, and he'd grab a hyssop branch, and he would dip it into that bowl of blood, and he'd take it up, and holding the bird, he would sprinkle it to where that blood was then applied to the second bird. And the result of that is because of one, and he would release it to fly away. And, and what happened, the result of that act of grace with no human touch, okay, that branch never touched it, with no human touch, we can't earn it, okay, it would take the death of one to provide salvation for another. And that's, that's the gospel. That's a picture here of, of this cleansing that's happening, uh, that's happening to them physically is a picture, I would suggest, of what happens to us spiritually when we trust Christ as our Savior. His death, his blood then gets applied to us that he is buried and raised and we are then set free. It's amazing. And so, man, we never get over just the very basic but the profound truths of the gospel. It's an amazing, amazing picture of what's happening here. And so um, 
if you, if you look here at, uh, at verses 15 and 16, you've got this divine uh, restoration that happens. And here you have a different reaction. This is the one in 10 that sets him apart, this, this Samaritan. This is what he does. Verse 15 and 16, now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And it's just one out of 10 guys stopped, was stopped in his tracks enough to the point they said, hey, I gotta go back. I gotta go back and give glory to God. Not, you know, not only am I healed and I have the gift and the blessing of being healed, but I wanna go back and say thanks to the one who healed me. I wanna go back to the, the benefactor of the blessing that I'm now walking in. And, and you know, until he had to realize two things in order to make that decision. Number one, he had to realize just how broken he was, just how leprous he had been. And second, he had to realize just how healed he now was. And when he realized those two things, that became his motivation to go back and to worship. And see, when we have a recognition of Christ in his place of authority, but also uh, coupled with the compassion on what Christ has done for us, in applying his death, his blood to our life, and his looking down upon us, we were outside the camp. See, sin alienates. It calls to live apart from God. And there's no hope for us, just like it was for the lepers. There was no hope for us. We simply looked at him and cried out for mercy. And God had compassion. And he saved you and me. And that's a great, great picture of what's happening. But until we realize the depravity of where we were, We'll never truly appreciate grace for what it is. We'll never understand the depths of brokenness and the hopelessness we were in. I love Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. It says this, remember. Okay, this is where, if you're a believer in Christ, this is where you were at one point. You're no longer here, and that's reason for thanksgiving. But listen, remember that you were at the same time separate from Christ, excluding from, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We were by nature children of wrath. That's where we were. But listen, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, even when we were dead, made us alive in Christ Jesus and saved us by grace. And this leper realized this. He realized what Christ had done of nothing of his own accord could have healed him from this leprous condition, and so he goes back. I don't know why the other nine didn't turn back, but this one man did, and he does, says he does three things. Number one, it says he glorifies God in a loud voice. I think the word loud there implies and speaks to the depth of gratitude that he must have felt uh, towards God for what he had done. Second, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet. Now, this was a man just a few moments ago who before could only call to him from a distance. But now, because of what's happened in his life, because of God's gracious touch and cleansing, he could now come into the very presence of God and bow down at his feet. He fell prostrate, a position of humility that recognizes his lordship and his authority as well as what I said about couple that with compassion that motivates him to turn around. And lastly, it says he gave thanks because he knew it was God who had given this gift and he wanted to express to him the thanksgiving that he felt in his heart.
the last thing in that verse it says, and he was a Samaritan, implying the other nine were Jews. And it sets the stage for verses 17 through 19 that talk about a divine reproof and restoration. It says Jesus here responds in these last three verses with three questions and a statement. And this is what Jesus said. Were there not ten cleansed? I mean, the other nine, where, where are they? Was no one found to give glory to God except this one man who happens to be a foreigner? who's got an incomplete Bible of the day, who didn't have the Messianic prophecies, who didn't have the prophets. They only had the Pentateuch, the Samaritans did. And he says, is, is the ones that I came to do miracles for, where are they? The ones who should have known better, where, where are they? I got this one foreigner over here. Why is he the only one? And I think the questions that Jesus asked clearly indicate a couple of things. Number one, that he expected and longed for a different response from the other nine. He longed for a different response. And second, it highlights our tendency as human beings to consider at times grace as our due. That somehow because of what we do, God owes us. Or if we don't maybe consciously use those words out loud, maybe we, maybe we just take for granted the blessings and we struggle with a feeling of ingratitude. One scholar wrote this, this quote, those who do not take blessings for granted make up an exclusive club of surprising people. It's a, ra- it's a rare thing for someone not only to feel thankful, but for someone to be moved to, to, to act and to ex- actually express thanksgiving to the one who has blessed them. And so Jesus tells this man, stand up and go. He said, your faith has made you well. So no need to go back to the priest. You don't have to go all the way. Just know this. Hey, I receive you. I accept you. I have restored you. And so you look at, you look at a text like this. You look at a story like this. And us just having come out of a, a season of celebration as a country, we you know, obviously take one time a year that we set aside a holiday and we, we call it Thanksgiving. But But you need to know that in the nation of Israel, when God established Israel as a nation, he didn't establish it just to relegate Thanksgiving to an annual event, okay? God established Israel to be the most thankful nation that ever existed on planet Earth. And the reason that I I say that is because of this. Every day in those days, if you are from Israel, Every day, every morning, every night, you would offer sacrifices to God and thank him for the day and for all that happened in it. Every seven days, you would set aside a day called the Sabbath and you would thank God literally for everything that you have, for food to eat, for the breath that you breathe, for the life that you have, for everything in your possession. At new moons, you would stop and offer sacrifice for that month that gave rise to the seasons. And at Pentecost, you would worship and thank God for the grain harvest. At the end of year feast of ingathering, you would thank God for the grape harvest. At Passover, which was the beginning of the Jewish New Year, you would thank him for your national identity and would remember uh, the freedom and the liberty and the deliverance that God had given to Israel from Egypt. And you would thank him that he passed over your ancestors, and allowed them to live, and ultimately you as well. Every seven years, 
you would turn loose all your servants and debts would be erased in recognition that God had freed you from your indebtedness. And every 50 years, a year of Jubilee, you give back your land to its original owner just to keep you from becoming materialistic and to remind you you're not an owner, you're a steward. And so the reason I say all this is that every generation, every day, every week, every month, every season, every year, goes on and on. Offerings for thanksgiving would saturate your lifestyle. It was a nation that God set up for all of these things to be the most thankful nation on earth. And in the New Testament, you know, we don't celebrate all of those things in the New Testament church that I just mentioned, but God's heart isn't any different. It's God's will. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18 says, in everything give thanks. Why? Because it's God's will in Christ Jesus. You know, we all have questions about the will of God. Is this God's will? Is it not God's will? Here's, here's something that I can tell you with confidence because Scripture attests to it. It's God's will for me to be a thankful man. It's God's will for you, everybody in this room, to be and to become a thankful person. And so with that said, as we, as we kind of come towards the end uh, of this message, I want to just share a few things with you uh, about why we give thanks and how we can cultivate uh, a grateful heart. And so number one, why give thanks? God longs for our love and our thanksgiving for who he is and all that he's done for us. Now, if you've ever had a child or a grandchild uh, write one of those letters to you when they're kids and they have all those misspelled words in them, you ever had one of those? Like, Dad, you're awesome, A-W-S-O-M. Or, or, or Mom, I love you. Here's what you did. You handed it back to your kid and said, run that through spell check. Okay, rewrite it, bring it back to me when it's corrected, right? No, Nobody, none of us do that. What did you, what'd you do with it? You took it and, and you gratefully received that for what it was, a heartfelt expression as best they knew how to express thanksgiving or love for you for who you are or something that you did, right? And listen, you know what? God's the same way. We feel that way because we're created in God's image. And listen, God is our Father and His creation longs for and desires thanksgiving from you and from me. And to be in a kind of relationship where we can appreciate what we do, and we've got to, to guard and make sure that thanksgiving is something that, uh, that is part of our regular, just as Israel had all of these things to signal. It was like a warning light on a dashboard. Hey, remember to give thanks. Remember to give thanks. Remember to give thanks through all of these things. That's how God wants us to wake up to live each and every day is to remember where we've been, what he's done, and to give him thanks. Second, we give thanks because it acknowledges that all we are and all we have comes from God. Listen to James chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. He writes, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Man, you know, we offer thanksgiving. Uh, we are recognizing our indebtedness to another person. And when we give our thanksgiving to God, we're recognizing our indebtedness uh, to God as our deliverer. We're able to give him the glory that we're due, and we are indebted to him 
most importantly for our salvation. And as I was thinking about this, we, we had a dog when I was growing up in my older teenage years, a dog that we actually found. His name was Sam. And uh, we found him. We were down at the property. A family had farm, and he was sitting over here on the side behind some bushes just looking at us. And we tried to call out to him, and he wouldn't come. And so we walked over towards him, and when we got a little bit closer, you could see his bones, that he was malnutrition. He hadn't had anything to eat and, and who knows when. And, uh, and he, was, he was broken. He had been hit probably by a car, had a broken hip. He couldn't hardly walk, couldn't hardly move. And he was in a helpless condition. And so we simply reached out and we fed him and put, I remember my mom putting this stuff on a plate and, and she arranged it just right. Man, he came in and he just, just took all of that stuff and ate it in a, in, a, in a heartbeat. And you know what? We fed him again. We put our hand out and he started to come. And you know what? Before long, he became loyal to us. And he recognized, he felt a sense of indebtedness to what we were doing for him. And you know, it's not all that different from you and me. When it comes to God, that's where you and I were. We were, we were off at a distance just looking towards God, hoping that there'd be some compassion, some mercy, some, some spiritual life and nourishment uh, in the midst of our brokenness. And God came to us. And it says he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. The gospel came to you and to me. And all of a sudden we were brought in. He began to feed us. And now our heart is wedded to his because we realize we're indebted to him for what he's done. And we want to be loyal as an expression of our thanksgiving for all the blessings that we have. You know, there's a, uh, a Chinese proverb that says, when you drink from the well, remember the spring. When you drink from the well, remember the spring because we're indebted to it. Every drink we take from the well is indebted to the spring that fed that well. And so we've just got to make sure that we don't simply enjoy the gifts that we have, but also the giver of them. Third, a reason to give thanks. It deepens our trust in God's sovereignty and develops our ability to walk by faith. And, you know, when we give thanks, even in the midst of hardships, even in the absence of good feelings about circumstances, um, what it does is it gives us a chance to express our trust in God. Uh, Paul Thigpen writes, gratitude involves both our heart and our lips, and sometimes our words can be the sparks that kindle us again. And so it's important, regardless of how we feel, to develop that habit, that discipline of thanking God, even for the difficulties. As Chip Ingram writes, thank you, God, is evidence of not only being under his lordship, but saying, God, it's a fallen world. I hurt, and this is difficult, but I trust in you. I thank you even for hardships. For this cancer, no, but that you'll work in it. For this difficult marriage, Lord, it's hard right now. I want you to change me, but I'm staying in it. For this difficult son or daughter that's wandered off, yes, Lord, because you are sovereign and because children are a gift from God. When we express our thanks, even in the midst of hardship, it deepens our ability to trust God, it strengthens our ability to walk by faith and not by sight. And it's a visible, audible expression to him of our desire to live that way. Lastly, cultivating a heart of gratitude, giving thanks for the small and the ordinary things. 
You know, we can't really employ a mechanical technique, but there are some things that we can remember that direct our attention to those things um, that draw us to God and appreciation for what he's done. And sometimes it's those small things. It's not just the big things in life. You know, a lot of times I remember, and even still, uh, praying with my kids before they go to bed and, and oftentimes thanking God for food in our pantry or our refrigerator, thanking God for clothes, thanking him for a warm bed. Those are things that would be easy to take for granted. But I wanted to cultivate in my heart and I wanted my children to know in their heart to remember to give thanks for those kinds of things, the ordinary things, not just the special things that happen every now and then, but the fact that we wake up and God has taken care of basic needs. Uh, Second, focus on giving thanks for blessings received more than asking for blessings. You know, there's an acrostic when we pray that oftentimes we talk about. It's called the Acts uh, process or adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. You know that? But you know, sometimes in our prayer life, uh, we can have an imbalanced prayer life. And I like that just very simple formula, for lack of a better word, of following because before we ever ask for one thing, there are three things we pray about. And we praise God for who he is. And we confess to him uh, our need for him, our, our asking for his forgiveness. And third is thankfulness. And so just consider as you pray, because I think sometimes we tend to think about prayer. I don't know about you, but sometimes in my mind, we think about prayer as something we're going to God with a need, and we do. We need to go, and he invites us to do that. But sometimes before we go with the need, let us remember to thank God for what we have and not always focusing on what we don't or what we're hoping he's going to do. Hebrews says, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And so, um, you know, just cultivating a heart of gratitude, remembering reasons to give thanks. This is a simple story. It's a simple story that reminds us to say, listen, it's not just enough to feel thankful in our heart. What God wants to do is to take that extra step, express our thanksgiving to him, even when it's tough. And so I want to wrap up, just share with you very briefly a story that Chuck Swindoll shared of a teacher. His name was John Cavanaugh. And John Cavanaugh had a student who was visiting an elderly lady at uh, an extended care hospital. And she was suffering from a condition that was causing uh, a lot of her uh, life and abilities to fade away over time. And he was so captured by her joy, um, her resilience and her thankful attitude, despite the hardships that he was watching her deal with. And he described this conversation they were having. And, and uh, she was someone, she said, she couldn't move her arms and her legs. And he said, though she couldn't do that, she would constantly say, I'm just so happy that I can move my neck. And when she couldn't move her neck, she'd say, I'm just so glad that I can see and that I can hear. And he asked her a question one time. He said, well, what's going to happen if one day you lose your ability to see and to hear? And her response to him was, I'll just be grateful that you came to see me. And so you think about a little simple story like that that just reminds us of an enviable attitude of gratitude that sets that one out of 10 apart from the other nine, responding, not just at a time of holiday, but throughout our life at Thanksgiving, just 
as we, as we talked about the nation of Israel, would saturate our lifestyle. It transforms our worship. It transforms the way that we live if we develop that habit and choosing to be one out of ten. Choosing that whenever we drink from the well, we remember the spring. All right? Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you so much for today, for the privilege that we have not only to experience the blessing of coming into your presence to worship, but Lord, just the fact that you have opened our eyes to see a God who exists, who has been gracious and compassionate to us, who has come in the person and the work of Jesus to bring salvation. And so, Lord, may we never get over the fact of what you have done to spiritually cleanse and take us from death to life. Lord, may may thanksgiving be something that characterizes my life even more so as I grow, to remember to give thanks for the blessings that I have. And, Lord, help us to be a church that gives you thanks, that that, that walks in the footsteps of this one out of 10 kind of person who didn't just celebrate and enjoy the gifts, but took time to express his gratitude for the giver of them. We love you, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.